Um, a few crazy things about prayer before we get started is <clears throat> that every prayer has the power, literally, to and, and, it'll, and it's, it's infallible. Like there's nothing that prayer can achieve. Literally nothing. That it can achieve? Cannot achieve. Oh, cannot achieve. So, um, for an example, um, so we find, we know Moses was this whole episode with the rock. So Moses hits the rock, and uh, God tells him to speak to the rock, and you know Miriam, his older sister, died, and uh, the Jewish people in the desert, they're, what are they drinking all day? They're drinking water from a rock. It's just miraculous. That's what it says, right? You know, it's, they, they were living on this supernatural plane where they ate food from the manna that fell from the sky and twi- twice on Friday, and, and they had water from the rock, and their clothing grew with them, and they were surrounded by these miraculous clouds that flattened mountains and killed predators and scorpions and snakes and whatnot. It was just a crazy place and time to live. And then uh, Miriam dies, and everyone's thirsty. And the day everyone's like, parched throats in the desert. So they go to Moses. Moses goes praise to God. God tells him, you know, Moses the prophet, God tells him, well, go and talk to the rock. So he goes and talks to the rock, and the rock's not responding. So he's like, well, last time God told me to hit the rock. Maybe God really wants me to hit the rock. He hits the rock, and suddenly the rock starts trickling, and then he hits it again, and there's water for everyone. That's the story. And the epilogue, God tells Moses, oh, you don't have faith. God tells Moses and Aaron, you don't have faith. Moses doesn't have faith. Yeah, that's what the verse, the verse says. You don't even go to the Talmud, the Midrash, like that. The verse says very clearly, Moses, Aaron, you don't have faith. What? You don't have faith? Well, that's what it says. And as a result of that, Moses is punished. They can't go into Israel. Moses and Aaron, they're both going to die on the eastern side of Israel. So, um, so Moses is not happy about that, obviously. And he starts praying to God, uh, let's reverse course and you know, let's atone for the sin. Let me get into Israel. So he starts praying and he prays once and twice and three times and God says, no, 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 no. And he prays again. He prays five times, ten times, a hundred times he prays, still no, no response. Five hundred times, this is the Midrash, it's very clear. Five hundred times he prays and what does God tell him? No. And he prays 515 times and then he stops praying. And the question is, why did he stop praying? You know, it says, um, this is in the beginning of Deuteronomy. We see um, Deuteronomy is like a, a monologue, Moses' monologue. Uh, and he talks about this whole story, and then he says, and I prayed to God, ve'et chanan, and I beseeched God. And if you take the numerical value of ve'et chanan, it's 515 corresponding to the 515 times that he prayed. Mm-hmm. So Moses is just praying again and again, relentlessly. Think about it, 515 times. The prayer of Moses is not just like, us, oh, so okay, let's pray, but blah, 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 break our teeth over the Hebrew letters, right? It's a prayer. It's, it's an immersion. It's an experience. Uh, a prophet praying, like, it's just incredible. 550 times and he stops praying. The question is, wait a minute, why would you stop praying? You know, if you're if you're praying 500 times, why do you stop then? Go to 1,000, go to five, you know, 5,000. Maybe maybe the prayer, obviously, Moses believed that if one prayer doesn't work, well, maybe two prayers will. The prayers have a, a cumulative effect that if one might not work, but two might, or maybe not two, but maybe 200 will. So he kept on praying until maybe, you know, 550 he stopped. Why would you stop? What, what, what do you think, Wendy? Why didn't he stop? Yeah, why would you stop? If you're going to be praying again and again, 550 times. Because I guess after 550 times of being told 15. no. 515 times of being told no, he got the point. He got the point. <laughs> well, that's what you would think, right? That's what you would think. So the Midrash tells us something insane. Hmm. Insane. It's just like this. 
God told Moses, stop praying. It's as if it's kind of what they do sometimes in the shuls here. It's like when you come and you're careful, but you don't have the ticket to get in. They have the big bouncer there. You can't get in. No more prayer for you. <laughs> That's what God told them. Bouncer at the entrance of the synagogue. You had no admittance. No more praying. Why? Because God tells them, if you pray one more time, if you push the needle one more time, if you go from 515 to 516, I'm going to have to destroy the world. What? Where did that come from? It's out of left field. God tells them, listen, Moses, the power of your prayer is enormous, obviously. Prayer of Moses. Moses, remember, Moses single-handedly got the Jews off the hook of the golden calf. The golden calf, God says, I want to destroy the Jewish people. Moses prays. He says the ten, the, the 13 attributes of mercy, and he prays again and again, finally gets the Jews off the hook. God says, I, I forgive them. The power of Moses is just enormous. And God tells him, listen, your prayer is cumulative. So 515 prayers, that's one less than the number that would force my hand. That would force me to let you uh, to let you, to give into you. However, I have to destroy the world. Why is that? The world was structured in a way that you cannot go into Israel. Why? Because if you go into Israel, we know Moses would, would be Mashiach, and that would ultimately just end the world a little bit, like one station early. It had Moses gone into Israel, had would there been a fusion of Moses and Israel, that would have changed the course of the world. That's that. I would have to destroy the world. The world cannot continue. Thus, what do we, and God says, don't do that because then you're, changed, you're, you're literally, you're meddling with divine affairs. This is not your business. You, you stop praying. This is, you know. But what's he essentially telling us? He's essentially telling us, have Moses, let's say, push, push the envelope. I'm going to pray in 516. God would be forced to let him into Israel. And then what would have happened? You have to destroy the world. It means even something which Moses, it's bad for Moses. It's bad for Israel. It's bad for the world. It's against the natural order of the way things are supposed to, to work. Prayer is going to push through. Prayer is going, to for, is going to force it. Thus we could say that prayer, there's a certain point in prayer where it guarantees this, the, the said result. Whatever the result may be. If someone prays literally anything in the world, it's going to work. Which... If you think about that as an introduction, the power of prayer, like, that's, that's insane. That, 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 that's incredible. That's um, uh, astounding. I'm trying to think of more words. It's awesome. It's, 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 it's striking. It's, and, and, and the question is, like, why? Like, you know, or how do we use it? Like, you know, uh, I read once that, um, that the greatest punishment that someone could possibly suffer is regret is the thought of what could have been. Like, I always say, like, you know, what's more painful? Uh, to not have something, just so to not have success, let's say, financial success. Or to not have financial success, to buy a lottery ticket, to have it be the winning ticket, and then you lose the ticket. <laughs> just think about the agony of living life after knowing that you had it within your fingertips and you just let it slip through. You, you just lost it and you don't know where it is and your whole life you're looking through your stuff and you know, the day's approaching where it becomes invalid and you have, you have 50 days left. You, you comb your house, you peel up your floorboards, you're trying to find this ticket and you can't find it. And how much are you pulling at your hair from agony? That's the worst kind of pain, you know. And I read somewhere that, that, that the greatest pain we can experience once we're dead 
is the realization of what we could have had, what we could have become, what we could have been, but especially with our prayers. You know, we have a life, we have agendas, we have things that we want, uh, we have, you know, professional things that we want, we have physical, material, spiritual, a whole array, health and relationships, everything, you know, children, whatnot. And we have like a very diverse list of things that we really would like to have. And what do we do? We try to, we, you know, we hopefully we live our lives to try to achieve those things. But we ignore perhaps the most pow- the powerful and potent tool that we can use to achieve them, that's prayer. And then what's going to happen? We die. And then what do we see? You know, our, our physical um, uh, uh, just veil or perspective uh, on the world is suddenly stripped away. And all you see is the spiritual perspective of the world. And because you have just, you know, your, your consciousness is just linked with your soul. You know, the body is just interred in the ground and forgotten about. Wait, buried, of course, the Jewish burial and whatnot. Um, of course, and there's sanctity to, to a body. A body was once a vessel to the soul. It's, it's very holy. That's why we have to take care of what, you know, take care of it. And you know, someone just texted me right now. This and someone in the in the community. I was asking him if we could play racquetball after my class at the JCC, and he tells me no. He has a tahara tonight. Tahara means a purification. Then that's the term used for what the Chaver Kadisha does. You heard the Chaver Kadisha? That's the burial society, the Jewish burial society, what they do with the dead body. Treat it, it's called Tahara, which means purification. They prepare it for burial, for a Jewish burial. And they treat it with the most care and the delicate, and you know, they don't, they don't treat it like a slab of meat. It's, 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 this was a vessel that held a soul, a Jewish soul. Just, it's remarkable. It has, to be, it has to be treated with reverence. Um, so the body is not to be ignored, not to be forgotten about. But, but what happens to someone when they're dead, right? So their consciousness is now with their soul. Their awareness, their, their feeling of me is no longer linked to their body and to their physical, to what they see and what they can hear, what they engage with on a sensory level. That's gone. The senses are gone. You don't feel anything anymore with your body. You don't see things with your body. All you have is your soul and that kind of feeling and perspective on life. And suddenly, you think about all that you could have had and all that you wanted and your deepest desires. And when your body was in control and your body was the one that was making these decisions, well, the body engaged on the bodily pursuit or the bodily tools to use for the pursuit of these goals. And suddenly, those, that perspective is gone. And you see, well, prayer. And how much I could have had, how much I could have accomplished, how much I could have transformed and changed and, 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 and you know, had I used this wonderful power. It's pretty, pretty, pretty incredible. Um, so, so, so we look at, you know, just as an introduction, prayer we look at as being this uh, tremendously powerful and essentially, uh, uh, you know, uh, boundless power. Uh, that we overlook sometimes. We look at prayer, unfortunately, as I do. Maybe other people don't. Uh, as a burden, you know, we got to pray. We got to pray We keep prayer very long. We're all hungry. We're cranky. It's very expensive. Right? Rosh Hashanah, lots of, two, you know, to be of two days. Wow, it's a lot of Rosh Hashanah. And a lot of chauffeur. You got to listen to so much chauffeur. And, you know, that's unfortunately the way we think about it. And I'm not pointing fingers. I, I am literally pointing fingers at myself. Guilty as charged, um, but that's a perspective that we unfortunately have, and and it's just because we have to realign our perspective on what the issue is. Uh, the issue the issue is man talking to God. You know, 
Think about how powerful. I had a friend in high school who would, um, every time we would have sessions in high school, um, he would put on a tie. It was bizarre. Like, it wasn't this preppy school where everyone wore ties. It was like he was the only guy who wore a tie, uh, besides for maybe faculty members. And I once asked him, I said, hey, uh, why are you putting on a tie before prayer? So he told me, he says, listen, if you had a meeting with the president, you would certainly, you know, prepare what you have to say. Maybe you would agonize over it. You would think, well, Shasugi should use this word. I have only 20 minutes and I talk to the president. You know, and you would come well coiffed and, you know, be wearing your best clothing and nice suit and a tie for sure. You know, you're about to talk to God. You know, God doesn't have any term limits. God, there's no checks and balances. God's not bound by any, you know, this is God. Almighty power, omnipotent, creative heaven, earth, everything. Billionaires of, the billionaire's billionaire. That's what God is. And you're not going to wear a tie? That's what he told me. And it's a very powerful lesson. And what's, and why don't, why don't I wear a tie when I pray? Why not? And, and not, obviously a tie is, 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 is a metaphor. But why don't we have that same reverence? Like, why are we not shaking like a leaf? And why are we not nervous when we go to pray? You know, if, if you and I were talking to the president, regardless of our political affiliations, it doesn't matter who the, right? There's a respect for the office. You're talking to the most powerful office in the United States. You know, this is something I'm not someone to sneeze at. We would have a certain reverence. You know, heart might be pounded a little harder. And we don't have that when we go to pray. Why not? Why are we comfortable? Well, there's, there's a cynical answer, which might be the true answer, and then there's a spiritual answer. Right. Well, what do you think? Why are we so comfortable? I, 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 I have conversations with God on Very. a daily basis. Okay. Not in a formal setting. Usually in my garden. Outside, after work, I sit outside, look at nature, and communicate with God. And appreciate what I do. Mm-hmm. And ask for things that I struggle with. So, so I think I, th- I th- right. I think that that's 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 not the cynical answer. That's also a true answer. That's because we're listen. We're God's children. You know, we're not. You know, we're like the president's children. You know, we're God's our billionaire dad. It's like the the guy who wakes up, uh, wakes up in the morning, and he sees uh, he sees that there's a big pothole in front of his house, massive pothole. So I thought he, I was way late. Nobody's here. Yeah, because there was no email sent out. There was no email sent out today. Ah, so people. Yeah, well, not nobody. So, so imagine you're living in uh, Iowa, Nebraska, or someplace that only shows up on the national consciousness during college football season and election primary season. And you have a pothole, and what do you do? You call the, you know, the 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 municipality, and you call the utility company, you call the mayor, and no one seems to fix it. So one day, on a whim, you pick up the phone, you call the the White House, and you call the White House, and you know what? You just get through and speak to the president, mm-hmm. and you tell him what the problem is. And next day, you wake up, and there's just a team of engineers, and they're fixing it, and just they give you their phone numbers, anything you just call me, like. That's the kind of access we have at, with prayer. It's a direct line. It's that red telephone where you go straight to the president. You don't have to deal with any secretaries or any gatekeepers or anything like that. Straight to the president. How, but uh, how are we granted? You know, why would simple people like you and I, why would we have access to that telephone? The answer is because we're the president's children. You know, we're God's children. And therefore, we don't have to have 
this reverence or this fear or this uh, hesitation or uncertainty or uncomfortableness when we go talk to God because we're God's children. You know, I think that's 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 the, probably the more spiritual answer. I think the cynical answer, which is uh, which is maybe the flip side. Well, we're God's God's our Father, but God's also our King. We have the Vino Martini. We have this you know uh, uh, this different relationships and different statuses of our. Relationship with God. On one hand, he's our father. There's a loving aspect. And he's our king. There's a seriousness to it. And I think perhaps maybe the reason why we don't feel that same uh, reverence uh, during prayer is because, you know, in our heads, in our tangible reality, we know we're talking to God, but we don't really feel it. We don't feel like we're talking to a president or a king. We feel like we're doing a spiritual duty, you know. We feel like we're doing what's right. We feel like we're fulfilling a mitzvah. You know, we, we feel a lot of different things. Do we feel like we're talking to a president? Maybe not. Maybe not as much. Or a king. Not as much. And I would argue that, you know, we talk about prayer. The word for, the word for prayer in the Torah is avodah. Work. You say prayer. This word doesn't seem like, where's the work in prayer? Perhaps the work is just getting comfortable, getting the feeling of talking to a teen. Like that's a, something you have to constantly be working on. Like if you're not thinking about it, if you're not conscious of it, if you're not uh, cognizant of the fact that you're talking to a teen, well, then you can very easily slip into the routine and the rote and saying the words of the prayer and not thinking about what it actually means. Uh, so that maybe would be an area of focus for us in our prayer to just have the realization, we are on the phone now, it's a red telephone, and we're talking to the president. And if not the president, we're talking to our king, if not the king, we're talking to our billionaire dad, and we're asking him for what we want, for what we want. And I think this perspective, you know, kind of answers a lot of questions we have in prayer. There's a major fundamental philosophical problem with prayer. What's that? So let's say you have someone who's sick, right? Someone's really sick, or they have cancer, God forbid, or they have pneumonia, God forbid, or they're whatever it may be, right? They're sick. Uh, and what do we do as Jews? We know that we send them to the best doctors, of course, but you also pray. And we say the Mishabayarach, and we say the Tehillim, and, you know, they're in our thoughts and prayers, quote unquote, right? That's the Jewish response. If you have faith, then you also talk to God about interceding, intervening, and intermediating into this problem that we have over here. For sure. But let's zoom it, zoom out here, okay? We believe that God does everything that he does for good. Everything that God does is for good. That's number one. Number two, when someone gets sick, well, who made them sick? Someone gets cancer. You know, so maybe they're chain smokers and they kind of brought it to themselves. But someone gets cancer. It's, it's kind of us, it's random. We don't know. It's uh, Cells just start, you know, reacting in a, in a weird way, and suddenly there's just something uh, poison within him. Where did that come from? It came from God as well. Yeah, well I mean, God allowed it. And it's got to be some cause. So. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, if someone's young, healthy, and they have cancer. It's a disaster. And, it's, you know, it's, yeah, and they're, they're, you know, they, they could be cured and they could stomp out the cancer. And that could be great, you know, with radiation or chemo or surgery or whatever. Or they could die. And that happens every day. You know, every day people die of cancer, and every day people are beating cancer, you know. And we're praying to God, you know, help him get through this. Help him or her get through this. 
Well, well, that's well, that's a question we don't have the answers to. Uh, that's not you know. But think about it from our perspective. This person got cancer from God, right? If you have faith, you have to accept that. So you would say, well, is it from God, or maybe it was their behavior? Maybe they didn't eat healthy. It means yes, it's possible that the person themselves contributed to, towards them getting cancer, for sure. You know, they smoked maybe, or they lived. They had they 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 they, uh, they did things that you know they didn't they didn't keep. You know, they didn't maintain their health. But still, there's for sure an element of God contributing towards an illness. For sure. Now, we're coming to God and saying, you know what? God, this guy's sick. We have a better idea. Us humans have a better idea. We want this person to be healthy. Thus, we're going to pray that the person gets healthy. Well, wait a minute. God makes them sick, and we're coming to say we have a better idea? Does that seem... It seems like there's a problem, right? There's a philosophical problem yeah. where we're, seem, we're seemingly we're trying to intervene in God's God's decisions. No, we're, we're, I think we're we're praying for God to intervene. Oh, for sure. Let's say, but we're trying to lobby God. Is that what it is? Lobbying. I mean, this is a real philosophical problem. It's you know, uh, I think there's an answer clearly. The question is, how exactly do we understand? these two realities, right? Someone's poor, right? So what do we pray? In the prayer, every day, three times we say, well, give us, uh, you know, give us uh, uh, sustenance, give us uh, prosperity, uh, you know, support us, you know. Mm-hmm. That's a prayer we say every day. I mean, I look at it this way. I mean, God God sets everything in motion. Just people have a finite life. Well, not a finite, but yeah, people do. are going to die. Yeah. So it's finite. And, yeah, so... Um, they're going to die from something. So all the God set all the different diseases in motion. I don't think He controls when you get sick. The, the things are out there. Some, you're going to die from something. And I, I don't think God sets your individual timetable. Well, this is this 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 we're dealing now with a theological debate. Yeah. Like how much is just nature, and how much is well, you know. Well, uh, nature's all created by God. That's right. That's right. That's right. Mother Nature. That's right. That's right. But the the many of the commentaries that talk about this, they talk about the fact that there's a difference between, let's say, nature at large and maybe animals versus, let's say, humans. Humans have what's called hashtaha pratit or divine intervention, where God's involved with our lives. You know, we pray to God because God's involved with our lives. Animals don't pray because then God's not involved in their lives. God may be involved on macro, big picture things, but not on micro, little picture things. I don't know how much he's involved in micro in, in, in our lives. It's, uh, well, according to according to the Jewish uh, uh, sources, uh, like for example, it says it's uh, not the, this is a huge topic. I know we're, we're broaching a big topic, but let's say uh, we talk about why bad things happen to good people, right? That's a good question that's asked in Judaism because, well, the question really only makes sense because God is involved. And if God's involved, well, why are bad things happening? If God was not involved, well, then that wouldn't be a question at all. It's just random. It can happen, it can happen anyway. It's one example. Another example, uh, the, the Talmud says, a person doesn't injure his finger below unless it was thus decreed from above. Which that, obviously, that's... that's that a person doesn't injure their finger from below uh-huh. unless it's thus decreed from above. Which makes it, which, which is much more expansive. It says that uh, anything that happens to you, good or bad, God's evolved with it. Right. So with that premise, 
the question arises, well, if I hurt my finger, what would I do? I say, pray to God that I don't get infected or that, you know, that I get healed well and that it's not deformed. I don't have a bad scar. That's a, that's a prayer. That's an acceptable prayer. Wait a minute. Your finger's injured. Who injured it? Or at least who allowed it to be injured? God. So, like I'm saying, there's, there's, there's semantics that we, could, that we could argue, debate exactly, well, did God do it deliberately? Did God allow it for me to do it? Did, did my acts contribute by me not being safe? I mean, that's, a, that's a very philosophical discussion. Either way, I think the culmination is God allowed it, at least. I don't know if God caused it or God allowed it. I don't want to go down the road because it's, 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 it's a very unclear how, how exactly, you know, it's a very fine discussion that, 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 that could, you know, we could go down that dark alley and, and never emerge. But regardless, for sure, the Jewish uh, tradition is that God allows it in, some, in whatever capacity that may be. Okay, God allows it. It's with God's consent. And we're coming in with prayer and saying, you know what? We want to change it. We have a better idea. We want the God to be healthy. When God wants him sick, we want him healthy. What do you mean? Who are we to involve ourselves? That's the question. I think it's a it's a it's a deep it means it, it, it's something which is uh, uh, problematic. I means that the problem itself is problematic because we're a rabbi. Are you trying to say that we shouldn't be involved in trying to make our lives better? We should just be miserable. Of course not, because the answer is also true as well. But the question is a question, despite the fact the answer is true. So I'm not saying our oh, rabbi. Are you trying to say we should sit on couches and do nothing? Just God let God just decide what happens to our lives? No, no, no. Then if we sit on couches, then we're deciding what happens to ourselves in our lives. But I think that this is the. The answer, I think, will be clear. The answer is like this. God wants us to have a good life. God, and God oversees what happens to us. However, we are partners with God in creating the universe. The very first definition, description of God given in the Torah is, I'm sorry, of man given in the Torah, is that man was created... In God's in the God, in the, right. But Salam Elohim, there is some sort of overlap that exists between man and God. As we know, man is not God, God is not man, right? Obviously, That's we're physical, right? We're physical. God's totally spiritual. We're very, very different from God. However, in some capacity, we're in the image of God. What does that mean? God partners with us in the universe. Who created the universe? God. Who oversees the universe? God. Who also oversees the universe? Who also has a say in what happens? Man. Our actions are going to contribute to what happens to the world. Good and bad. If I could choose to be a good person and positively contribute towards the world, or I could choose to be a bad person and negatively contribute to the world. Man, via their free will, is partnering with God. It's not just God deciding what happens to the world. We could choose our path. We could choose what happens. Thus, if someone's sick, and they just say, oh, you know what, I refuse to go to the doctor, right? Essentially, had they gone to the doctor, they would have healed themselves. They chose to die. Thus, partnering with God, God takes into account what they want. You okay, you want to die? Sure, you could die. That's in your hands. You're a partner with God. What if someone jumps on the roof, you know? Well, could someone say, you know what, I'm going to jump on the roof. If God wants to do that, let him, let him kill me. Right? Could someone say that? Sure. I'm jumping off the roof and, and it's, it's 25 stories. If God decides that I die, may it be, be so be his will. What ha- what, what's going to happen? They're going to jump off the roof. They will die. 
Not because God wanted them to die, because they chose to die. And it's not just in God's hands. It's in our hands as well. We are partners with God. So essentially, like I said, that's the answer. So yes, of course, we have a huge say in the matter. Of course, our actions matter. Uh, Right? Together with God. Now, prayer. What's prayer? What are we doing? Someone's sick, right? We send the doctors, of course, right? But is that all that we could do to maybe exercise our say in the matter? To take our seat at the table? Is it just is it just send it to the best doctors? No. Prayer is man exercising their power of being in the image of God, of taking a godly stance in the world, of just like God says, I'll decide what happens. I'm God, right? That's what God says. You know what? What do we say? We're humans. We're humans. We're created in the image of God. We also have a say. And our prayer is going to contribute to what happens to that person in their lives. Our prayer, when I say, give us a refuah, give us a healing, give us a complete healing, what am I doing? I am living life as a man who is created in the image of God, and I'm doing my share of leading the world. Via my prayer, I'm partnering with God. It means, think about that. What essentially we're saying is that prayer has all the power. Prayer is unlimited in its power. That's what we said. Uh, 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 we brought uh, proof from Moses uh, to that effect. But also, prayer is man exercising their tremendous power that they're designed to do. From the beginning, we're created in the image of God. We have a say in the matter. We have a seat at the table. We can negotiate what's going to be to the humans. Um, so I think that kind of raises the profile of prayer. Prayer is, is this incredible power that we have, but it's also us acting as humans ought to act, wherein we try to intercede what happens in the world. Right? God says, okay, this person's either going to live or going to die. They're sick. Right? You humans, you could decide what you're going to do with that. You know, it's, it's up to us. If we say we're not sending them to the doctor, well, they're probably going to die. You know? Not because God made it bound to happen, but because we chose to not, to not do what, 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 you know, what we could have. Additionally, if we say, you know what, we're not going to pray, we'll just send it to the doctor. Well, we couldn't have done what we We didn't do all that we could have, and maybe they, they would have lived otherwise, and now they're going to die. Because we did not uh, uh, seize, seize with an S, onto the power that we have to do our utmost to make sure that, that someone's going to be healthy. Why? Because that's the way God wants it. In the world, God wants that us and him are partnering with what's going to be uh, in the world. We say, just as if you want to zoom this to big macro, macro scale, uh, we think of just the, the, the word Mashiach, right? So obviously the, that's one of the heaviest words in Judaism. Everyone has their own perspectives and uh, miscommunication, and mis- misconceptions about it and whatever. Either way, what does the Talmud say? But one of the things the Talmud says is very strange. Thomas is about Mashiach. Mashiach will come in a generation that's entirely righteous or in a generation that's entirely wicked. Thus, <laughs> thus, what it's say, essentially saying like this, it's going to happen. The destination is set in stone. However, us humans, via our actions to the righteous side or the wicked side, are going to decide which way, which path are we going to choose. Of course, it could either come as a result of our actions or despite of our actions. Right? It could either be really beautiful or really miserable. 
I mean, I don't see. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're never going to be. Everybody's never going to be good, and everybody's never. Gonna well, be I good. we're always going to have both sides. Well, right, but I also think that um, one of the interpretations of that particular piece of Talmud is that the generation should be very polarizing. Thus, you have a lot of Jews. Means I think today um, there's a consolidation uh, that's happening within the Jewish people in two ways. If you look at the Jews, maybe of 200 years ago, um, or even 100 years ago, even 50 years ago, you had very strong lines between Jews that were, let's say, very observant, and then you had the conservatives, which was a very distinct group in a philosophy. You had the reform, which is a very, very different than both the observant or strictly observant, halach observant, and the conservative. The reform were very, very different, very anti-Israel, anti-Zionism, um, you know, very, I would say, anti-tradition. So, like, you couldn't walk into a reform temple with a kippah. Like, that was taboo, totally taboo. And what, ha- what, what do we have now, like 50, 60, 70 years later? We have kind of a consolidation. Like, you know, if you ask the average, you know, Jew in the street, well, you're Jewish, okay, well, what, is it, well, what kind of Jew are you? Well, they might say, well, conservative, reform, whatever. You know, they might give their answers. But once you dig deeper, you'll find that almost all Jews that are part of the Jewish kind of communities are uh, going to say, well, you believe in God? Yes. Well, you believe in Torah? Yes. Well, you know, do you believe in tradition? Yes. Do you believe in the value of of, 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 you know, perpetuating Judaism to our children and living a Jewish kind of life? Yes. You know, there's a certain consolidation, whereas there were strict demarcation lines between the different kind of groups of Jews and Jewish practices. Now those are kind of, you know, narrowing and consolidating on one end. And then you have the Jews that are totally gone. You know, you have so many Jews, unfortunately, that are, that are, that are sold out, that, that don't even identify as Jews, not even culturally, don't even show up in shul and Yom Kippur, nothing, you know? Unfortunately, that's a re- growing reality. So you kind of have this the, these two coexisting groups of Jews, wherein one of them is totally dedicated to Judaism and very, very passionately uh, supporting Judaism and Jewish causes and Jewish learning and Jewish everything. On the other hand, you have the Jews that are just, you know, just not at, at all. You don't you don't find that they're they don't they don't have a zuz in the door. They don't nothing. You know, they're totally I, gone. I, I think a majority of Jews are non affiliated. Yeah, they're not affiliated, and, and where are they? Well, they're everywhere, but they're nowhere. You can't see them because they, they, they don't necessarily act or behave or identify or anything like that. So I, I find that there is a growing kind of uh, a polarization of Jews, wherein you have the Jews that are becoming progressively more involved and more, more Torah study and more synagogues involved and more, like, moving more towards being more involved with Judaism. And then you have, unfortunately, the other side of the coin, where there are lots of Jews that are going kind of further and further away and less involved. You have the anti-Israel Jews and, you know, the self-hating Jews and, like, the Jews that are supporting the Arabs and all that that trend as well. So I, I think that perhaps what the Talmud is saying where, when it's saying that in a generation that's righteous or a generation that's wicked, what it is in fact saying is that it's a polarized generation where you have some Jews that are unfortunately, you know, entirely wicked, means entirely disassociated from Judaism. And then you have the Jews that are entirely righteous, entirely dedicated uh, towards towards uh, towards Judaism. That's perhaps an interpretation. That's you you know where it's not separate generations, but rather coexisting within one generation. You have separate factions amongst the Jewish people. Well, maybe. Oh, that's that's what it says. That interpretation is that maybe that's the maybe during the polarization where. Yeah. 
that maybe that some Jews will contribute to him coming, some will contribute to him not coming, and he'll come for some Jews because of their actions, and he'll come for some Jews despite of their actions. But either way, my, my well, the Talmud talks about that. What if you born Jews, you don't know anything about it? You grew up in an entirely irreligious family. You didn't even know you didn't even know you were Jewish. You know, you, you, you know, you're you're uh, in the 19th century. You had a quarter of a million Jews that uh, were baptized. So, um, what happens if you grew up and you thought you were Christian your whole life? And whatever. So that's a reality, and that's the Talmud talks about that. In fact, all the way back to the times of Talmud, you have what's called a Tino Chenishba, a small Tino a baby Chenishba was taken captive. What happens if you have a Jewish baby that was taken captive at the age of I don't know two months, three months? They don't know anything. They grow up in an entirely non-Jewish environment. So uh, the Talmud talks about that. Says, Listen, like, I can't be blamed for not. Obviously, you can't be blamed for not knowing what you don't know. Uh, obviously, it's a very unfortunate situation. Um, but there's nothing. It means they're not held liable for what they don't know. Uh, and it's obviously a very sad reality. So, if- but my, my my point that I want to just bring out of this idea, this is a macro picture of how our actions and what we do, that's going to contribute to what happens to us. We could be entirely righteous and that's going to contribute to one very good thing to happen to us. We could be entirely wicked and that'll be a very bad thing to happen to us. The result might be the same in the big picture, Mashiach, but it'll be very good or very bad. You know, well, this might be controversial. So if you don't like controversial opinions, maybe hold out, hold on this one. Um, if you believe in God being involved with us in our lives, you cannot ignore the fact that the Holocaust was has God's fingerprints all over it. That's a big problem, obviously. It's a very grave discussion. It's a very sensitive discussion. You know, we, at least me, I, you know, we have a lot of family that suffered, unfortunately. You know, and so it's a very personal, very sensitive topic. But if you believe in God, you have to deal with this problem. You have to grapple with it. It's a real problem, you know. But we say, you know, that God did it because of whatever reason he deemed fit. And this might be an example of Jews abandoning Judaism and being half the, you know, uh, of Jews and the Jewish people at that time. Uh, the early part of the 20th century, Jews were very, very, this is a very low point in Jewish, in Jewish history. Perhaps the lowest point and we, that might be an example of the Jewish people being entirely wicked. And it's a punishment towards bringing a certain end. I've always explained the Holocaust that man has free will. God does not interfere in the day-to-day things. And it's well, yes, yes, but there's a problem with that because on matters of national scale, God for sure doesn't in, does, intervenes. That's for sure. There's so many examples to that, like just if you think about an example, a twenty five hundred year old example, wherein uh, uh, the, the prophet Ezekiel, along with ten thousand of the best and brightest, are exiled ten years before Nebuchadnezzar destroys the first temple. Uh, so they go to Babylon, and that's obviously a matter. If you had ten thousand, the best and brightest, the doctors, the lawyers, everyone taken out of Houston, the ten thousand most gifted Jews are suddenly sucked out of Houston. What happens to the Houston Jewish community? Well, it's going to implode. So what's going to happen? And we would view that as a very disastrous and calamitous event, of course. Uh, but if you look at it in hindsight, you see, well, there's, you know, 10 years later, the temple's destroyed. The Jewish people are taken in mass to exile in Babylon. Where they get, what happens when they get to Babylon? They see a fully vibrant and growing Jewish community because you have uh, uh, established 10,000 of the best and brightest 
went there and they're there ready and what do they have you they have shuls and schools and mitvahs and 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 Beidel shops, everything's ready for a Jewish community to thrive. And then what happened? The Jewish community thrived very, very greatly in, the, in Babylon. So that Talmud brings that as an example of, on issues of national scale, if it's the entire nation, it's God for sure involved. Right? On an individual scale of that, then we could debate. Well, what if someone you know, pulls a gun at you and mugs you, you know, or God forbid shoots you or hurts you or injures you, right? Well, how does some man's free will Affect my free will affect someone else. That's a huge debate. It's, it's a very, very naughty subject. But in matters of national scale, as evidenced by, let's say, the story of Pharaoh and God hardening Pharaoh's heart, where free will is temporarily suspended because of a national goal, it, you can't say that it was just uh, it was just you know man made. Yes, of course, there's the element of free will uh, to it as well. But God allowing that to happen, you have to deal with the question of why. You cannot avoid it by saying free will because it's national. And I'll tell you, you know what? If we look at the verse, this might send chills down your spine. It, it didn't mind. Okay, we're going way off topic here, which is okay. So if you look at a verse, we do a verse here. This is a verse in the book of Deuteronomy. And it says... Tell you what page it is on here. This is page twelve fifty seven. This is Deuteronomy chapter twenty nine, verse twenty seven. And I quote: "This is my. uh, I believe this is clear. This is a. This is a prophecy that's being forecast. This prophecies of, of Deuteronomy." And Hashem uprooted them from upon their soil with anger, with wrath, and with fury uh, that was great. And he cast them to another land as, uh, as it is this day. So it talks about God in a very angry, very bad fashion. He's going to take the Jews out of the land and put them in a different land. I believe this is clearly talking about the Holocaust. This is foretelling the Holocaust. Um, why? So we have descriptions. The Jewish people are in a land... And they're being furiously uprooted from the land and sent to a different land. So maybe it's, you could argue that maybe it's being referred to, let's say, the Hadrianic persecutions. But even the Hadrianic persecutions, it wasn't so much the Jewish people living in their land and being uprooted. It was more like the persecution was in their land. I find the Holocaust as being an example of a thousand years of contiguous Jewish civilization in Europe being almost overnight uh, ended. And now the Jewish communities are existing in Israel and in, in the United States. Almost no vibrant Jewish community exists in, in Europe as it had existed for over a thousand years. And I'll tell you like this, this is a secret, guys. And it's verified. If you count the verses from the Torah, right, in order, the first verse, Bereshis Bara, that's verse number one. Verse number two, verse number three, right? You will find that this particular verse in, in Deuteronomy is verse number 5,699. Oh, yeah. 5,699. And that, if you translate that to the Jewish... Years ago. If you translate that to the year 1939. Like, it's just... Listen, it could be a coincidence. I don't know. I don't know. I, I have no idea. But it's clear that... Oh, it's not clear. But it would it, be the craziest of coincidences that the verse that most resembles the Holocaust... Is uh, 
is exactly to the date, to the year of uh, of since Adam. You know the way we count the Jew uh, to that uh, that event uh, happening. And in fact, if you look a little bit later in those verses, it talks about going back to Israel. Uh, the verse that talks about going to Israel is just a few verses later. Uh, the verses that talk about the, 19th, the, the the verse that talking about God saving the Jewish people from what they thought would be their destruction is the is is corresponds to the year 1967. The years that uh, the verse that talk about uh, the verse the years that correspond to the first and second temple being destroyed. If you look at the verses that correspond to that, seem to eerily be referring to them. I don't know, man. This is scary stuff. I know this is scary stuff. But when I saw that, I literally almost I almost fell off the. Yeah, what's the con- What's the context around this? Well, it's 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 Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. The context is. Uh, what happened right before that? You you, you don't want to uh, be too married to an idea, which is an idea, which is it's not it's not predictive. It's you know, we're looking backwards. Um, so you'll say, well, you know, you don't want to take this too far out of context. Um, but there is an argument to be made. Well, you look at it. You say, hey. Yeah, you look, you look at Jewish people descending. This is the pattern for sure that exists within Jewish history where at the time the Jewish people are most likely to be living like non-Jews. That's when they get the most punishment. That's when anti-Semitism is at, is at its highest and the Jewish people in their unique identities at their lowest. So see, so it's, it's prefaced by uh, them like acting like Gentiles and doing idolatry uh, and God getting angry with them and God cursing them and God destroying them. I don't know. I, it, maybe it's a coincidence. Who knows? But either way, um, that idea... Thing is well, yeah. <laughs> but that idea is a very, very deep rooted idea wherein man's actions... Are going to occupy uh, upon them to um, uh, whatever you know. Like we said, we're partners with God, and our actions are going to have ramifications for us, for, for our families, and for the community, for the world at large. You know, we talk about tikkun olam. What is tikkun olam? The rallying cry of the Jewish people. What does the word tikkun olam mean? Prepare. To prepare what? Okay, so what does that imply? The world's broken. Excellent. What do you mean the world's broken? God gave us a broken world. Well, why is the world broken? Well, what's wrong? You know, what's the climate change? What, what's broken about the world? Well, yeah, now they're kind of broken. I don't know, but you tell me. Why is the world broken? Because people are so angry with each other. Oh, come on! No, yeah, right. people are very happy. You met you met, you met people today who are so angry with you. No, but there are people There's, in the world that are very yeah, angry maybe with me. yes, but you need to fix that. Why is the world broken? We're so we're so we're, we say this. It's like a, it's like a dogma. It's like a platitude. It's it's axiom of the Jewish people. Tikkun olam. What's so broken about the world? There's a lot of people that are not doing well in this world. They don't have food. They are abused. They are. You know, people like that. So you're saying that the United States we're pretty pretty good. You know, in Africa that's broken. There's only one continent that's still broken. Yeah, I know. The Middle East. The Middle East is pretty broken. Yeah. Yeah, That's but is, is that what it means? Is that is that all it means that we have nothing to fix at home? It's just. No, we have so when we talk about two home, fixing the world, mm-hmm. we're essentially saying the world's broken, right? So you're saying it's broken because well, there's, there's poverty or whatever, there's there's uh, tyranny or whatever that whatever whatever. But um, 
in, in, in our prayer, we talk about letaken olam in the Alenu prayer. We say letaken olam machut shaday. We say to fix the world with the kingdom of God. What it's telling us is the world is broken. What's broken? There's something missing. There's something lacking. There's something that's not present in the world that makes it broken. What's the, that's right. That's right. Not, to, not just a lot of people. Even to us. Like we said, hey, we don't have trepidation when we go into prayer. You know why? So you have your reason because God loves us. I have my reason because you know what? In our heart of hearts, we may know intellectually that God's listening to us. We don't really feel it. We feel like we're talking to a king. We don't. You know what? You know what that shows? That's a broken world. God, who did everything, who created everything, well, He's invisible to us. Not just obviously physically, we can't see Him, but in our perspectives, in our actions. You know, when someone sins, what are they doing? They're doing something which is against God's will. How do you do something which is against God's will? The only way to do it is because you're in a broken world, the world which does not effuse and exude the idea of God. Thus, that's the problem that the world's broken with. Now, how are we going to fix it? By bringing God into the world. Right? Thus, the collective mission of the Jewish people is to infuse the world with, with godliness. And we have a say in the matter. We're the ones who are going to do it. Only humans can do this. Only humans can do it. Angels can't do it. Angels cannot fix the world. Humans can Right? And our prayer, what, is the, what, what happens with our prayer? What, what, what do we do? We testify. We say, you know what? Someone's sick, who could heal them? God can heal them. Someone's poor, who could take care of them phys- uh, financially? God. You know? Someone you know, needs help with their relationship, with their career, with their family, with, with the, anything. God. Essentially, our prayer goes a long way into fixing the world. A world where people recognize God and go to God to ask for their needs, well, that's a world that is fixed. Why? Because God is here. The, 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 this, this wonderful reality is present and tangible to everyone. Thus, prayer is fixing the world. Tikkun olam happens when we pray. Because now the world is a little bit less broken. And a world where people realize God, well, that, that's a world that everything else is going to fall in place. We'll have that prosperity. We'll have, right? All, God wants to remember, God's a, think of God as a loving father. What does God want? God wants to make us miserable? Of course not. God wants to give us everything. We just have to ask for it. That's what he wants. I mean, he doesn't want us to be that kid. And I'm sure we all know at least someone or heard of someone who, who was like that. That kid who just, you know, at the age of 16, gets the BMW. Brand new, spanking, spanking new BMW. You know, does, is that what God wants us to be like? The obnoxious, ungracious, you know. That's not what God, bratty. Is that what God wants of us? No. God wants to be humble. And you know what happens when you pray? You get humble. You have the prayer. You have the humble. You have the, to achieve what it is you want to achieve. You have the faith. You have the fix in the world. So many, and you have that, that seat at the table. You're partnering with God. I mean, prayer is not just about monotony, arduous recitation of words in Hebrew that we have no idea what they even mean. In strange buildings that have, I have to wear prayer shawls and talk in Hebrew and, you know, 
follow etiquette and whatnot. Prayer is much, much broader uh, uh, than that. You know, and uh, we talk about uh, Isaac. Yeah, Isaac has been the model of prayer. And we don't, we don't know a lot about Isaac. You know, Isaac is not one of the individuals that's highlighted in, 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 in the Torah, you know. But we find that Isaac, he, he went to the fields. He went to talk to God. And like you said, you know, Wendy, you brought this point up. Prayer is man talking to God. We unfortunately associate prayer with the synagogue and associate with the synagogue with dues and membership and, and social realities. You know, I tell my kids this all the time. When you're scared, when you're frightened, when you're alone, talk to God. Talk to God. How do I talk to God? What do I do? Where's the manual? What's talking to God for dummies? You know what it is? Talking to God like you talk to your friends. Talk to God in English. And don't wait till you're in a synagogue, wait till it's Saturday, wait till it's Yom Kippur, wait till it's Rosh Hashanah. Talk to God throughout your day. In your garden, he said, but in your car. When the radio goes to commercial break, right? What are you going to do? You're going to listen to commercials? You don't have the, your head, you know, uh, wonderful window, windowsinsiding.com? Gulf Coast windows? Is that what you Or you turn off the radio for two minutes and talk to God. You're about to go to make a phone call, difficult phone call to some supplier who's angry or something like that, right? <laughs> right? What do you do? Talk to God and say, hey, God, I'm about to go into this and help me. Maybe let the words flow off my tongue. Talk to God. I tell my kids all the time, talk to God in English. God can hear you and understands English on a very, very high level. Most of us speak a fluent or at least conversational, rudimentary English. We could talk to God in English. We don't need to go through Hebrews. Those are barriers. Talk to God in English. You're in your car. You're you're walking to the water cooler at work. You're waiting for your coffee to brew. You're waiting for the barista to give you your coffee. Talk to God. And what? You'll say, well, wait, wait a minute, Rabbi. I'll talk to God, but I think everyone will think I'm strange and talk to myself, you know. I say to get get one of those Bluetooth earpieces. <laughs> and it doesn't be audible, but you just mouth it. I know if I have I had a friend who told me that when he would when he would pray in public, he would go to the phone booths. We don't have phone booths anymore. But he would go to the phone booth and like put the phone booth and just hear the dial tone, but then he would talk to God, but then everyone would think that he's Yeah. yeah. Probably wasn't working. A real one. That really worked. You got put in quarters and stuff? Yeah. Oh, you don't need to pay for it. Just go. Yeah, you just take it. You're like, you know. So, so that, that's that, guys. And I, you know, I feel like, you know, we, we, we live lives, and no matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter what stage you are in life, you have stresses. You have things that are, you know, you might be the wealthiest guy in Houston, but you have things that are stressing you. And you might have challenges and may not be in financial years, might be in health or relationships or some of your kids or, you know, something at, at work or anything in your life, you know. You want to have personal goals. You want to, you might be struggling with your weight or whatever it may be. Everyone has something that they're, that they're, that they're striving to, to, to achieve. And we feel we're all alone, you know, we're, we're here. Maybe you have your family, maybe you have a support structure, and that's great. But ultimately, you know, it's, it's you. It's your thing. It's on your shoulders. With prayer, you kind of outsource it to God as well. It's not just you. You're not alone anymore. Suddenly, every issue that you have 
if you take this prayer attitude, suddenly it's not just about you alone dealing with your problems. You have God. And you can offload to God. You kind of outsource to God. You say, listen, it's not just me. I have God on my side. And what happens to your problem? Suddenly it's just, you're not all alone. You, have, you feel like, well, if God has broad enough shoulders to handle this problem as well. So those are, those are some ideas. I, so I, what I, I always suggest, you know, what we could do maybe um, is, you know, just try this. Just try it every day. Talk to God. Um, you know, there's a great story here. In, the, in, in Jewish literature, um, the word for prayer or a description of prayer is a, a umanut. Umanut means a craft. My grandfather said that, um, that a, uh, a craft, what, what makes a craft? Someone, some, someone, someone does that, so they do for a living. You know, that's their craft, that's what their job is. So he's given an example that you have a, a, a surgeon and the wake up the surgery in the middle of the night, and let's um, say I got to do sur- emergency surgery right now. So the guy is like grog, guy or girl, like very groggy, rubbing their eyes and putting on their clothing and like slobbering their way to the operation room, you know. And they get there, and do they need to like read a manual, what to do? Do they need to like say, well, wait a minute, what do I need? No, they just right away, no matter what, no matter what state they're in, they they know how to do what they need to do, right? They're experts, you know. If you're if you're a surgeon, this is what you do. You've been doing it for years and years and years. You don't need to be reminded what you need to do. It's a neat, It's like muscle memory. So it's how you react to a situation. They have actually they have surgeons in, in emergency rooms that work thirty six hour shifts. And how do they not kill people? They don't because it's it's muscle memory. They they just they, you know to them it's it's not something they need to think about. They just do it. That's what prayer is for the Jewish people. Um, my grandfather told a story about one of his students who was in the War of Independence. And he's in a ship, and the ship is full of, of these um, early Zionists, these soldiers, these passionate soldiers that were very anti-religious. And it's hit by this torpedo, and the ship starts sinking, and they're calling for help, and they're whatever, radioing for help, and help's coming, but the ship is sinking fast, and the help's coming. And, and the student described how almost in unison the people just start calling out to God, the prayer. And people that wouldn't pray the rest of their lives, but we say that prayer for the Jew is like surgery for the surgeon. It's something that we do. We have, it's muscle memory. right? We've been there before. This is what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. Abraham corresponds to the early prayer, uh, the morning prayer. Isaac corresponds to the afternoon prayer. Jacob is, towards, is, is, is corresponding to the evening prayer. Right? This is deeply enmeshed in the Jewish psyche, the Jewish consciousness. When a Jew prays, they feel like their soul is finally talking its native tongue. Right? That's what it is. Prayer for the Jewish people. We, we've been there before. We, I hope, hopefully when we feel like, you know, sometimes when people you know, start praying for the first time in a serious way in English, talking to God, they have like these, it feels awkward, it feels, they feel, they feel weird, they feel out of place, they feel insecure, they feel like they're not doing something natural. Uh, but I think once they get over that, you'll find that this is something very, very natural. This is something that you've done before. This is deeply rooted in your bones as a Jew. That's what I want. I want them to try this week, um, maybe once a day. Just talk to God, pray to God, and it doesn't have to be. I know you, if you do it, that's great. That that's absolutely great. I have to stop. 
So. Um, that that's fantastic. But that, uh, do you feel like it changed your life? I I, I know with me, I yeah. I felt when I started doing this, and I know exactly when I started doing it, I know exactly how old I was and where I was, and I remember, like, and I think it changed my life, literally. Like, I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't be married to, to my wife. Like, I know that. I, I feel that. I know that's true. Like, I know when I was going through any challenging period of my life, like, this is what kept me afloat. So it, it's, 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 it, it, it absorbs a person. It, it changes who they are. Like, you, it changes your reality. It's that powerful. So that's what I wanted to do. Like you know, to try this, try it out. If you haven't, if you've done it, great. Keep 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 it up. And if and if you have never done it, well, try it out before. And you know what? If you're skeptical, if God can hear you in English or God can hear you at all, say that. Be real. Be genuine. Yeah. Be sincere. Say, listen, God, I have no idea if you can hear me. Rabbi always says you can. Uh, I'm somehow I'm dubious of that fact. Uh, but I'll talk to you just, you know, in the off it's like when, you know, you know, it's not exactly what it's like. It's like, you know, when you call someone and you get the voicemail and they say in their voicemail, I don't actually ever, I don't ever check these voicemails, but you can leave voicemail box anyhow. And then you leave a message. It's like a hesitant message. You're like, well, listen, I'm leaving the message. Uh, today is, uh, today's uh, Tuesday, the 21st of April. I don't know if you'll ever get this, but I wanted to talk to you. And if you do get this, call me back, you know. Sometimes we'll pray like that. It's we'll we'll tell God, you know what? I don't know if you hear me. I don't know if you pick up this messages, but if you do, this is what I need. Uh, this is what I need, and, and just talk to God like you would talk to your friend. That's the epitome of prayer, and all the things that we talked about prayer that will bring to you that will fall will fall suit. So that's my suggestion. Let's let's try that, guys. Um, it's it's um, maybe it's simple, maybe it's rudimentary, but for sure it's life changing. It's life changing. Yeah. Let's give it a shot. Yeah. Yes. And that's that, guys. What do y'all say? We'll give it a shot. Yeah. But it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to disrupt your schedule. No, I don't mean that. I mean, to get your prayer. Five hundred fifteen times. That's what Moses prayed. <laughs> Well, there you go. But you got what you wanted? That's great. Five years? Every day. So it's about 1,500 prayers. But you got it. Remember, the, the major says that, not a, that not, not a single prayer goes unanswered. Sometimes the result... No, no, well, no. But oh, sometimes the result is not achieved after one prayer, two prayers, five prayers. But eventually, you'll get what you what you want, you know. And even something which is bad for you, like Moses, what Moses.